Section 6 of Starved Rock, a Historical Sketch by Eaton G. Osman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Veronica Jenkins. Section 6 La Salle's Successors, The Missions. La Salle's Successors. His step is firm, his eye is keen, nor years in brawl and battle spent, nor toil, nor wounds, nor pain have bent the lordly frame of old castine scott two hundred years ago henri de tonti a veteran of the sicilian wars in which he had a hand blown off by a grenade whom la salle met in paris in sixteen seventy eight is one of the most superb figures in the annals of the mississippi valley his industry and energy his bravery and his tact his integrity and his faithfulness, his honorable character and amiable disposition, unite to differentiate him from all those whose names, as the lesser stars, crowd the earlier pages of those annals. Parkman calls him that brave, loyal, and generous man, always vigilant and always active, beloved and feared alike by white men and by red. Mrs. Catherwood says, La Salle is a definite figure in the popular mind, but La Salle's greater friend is known only to historians and students. To me, the finest fact in the Norman explorer's career is the devotion he commanded in Henri de Tonti. No stupid dreamer, no ruffian at heart, no betrayer of friendships, no mere blundering woodsman, as La Salle has been outlined by his enemies could have bound to himself such a man as Tonti. The love of this friend and the words this friend have left on record thus honor La Salle, and we who like courage and steadfastness and gentle courtesy in man owe much honor which has never been paid to Henri de Tonti. Tonti, while La Salle was making his last voyage to France, was removed from the command of Fort St. Louis by order of Labar, who was determined to ruin La Salle. But he remained to keep watch and ward over La Salle's interests at La Roche. The next year, however, the king reinstated him as La Salle's commandant at the Rock. He no sooner heard at Mackinac of La Salle's landing and earlier disasters on the Gulf than he prepared at his own cost an expedition for his relief composed of twenty-five Frenchmen and eleven Indians. He went to the mouth of the Mississippi, but finding no trace of the colony, returned to the Arkansas, where six of his men volunteered to remain, two of whom afterwards rescued La Salle's brother, Cavalier, Chotel, and others, who, with unpardonable ingratitude, carefully concealed the fact of La Salle's death, even while they accepted for months Tonti's hospitality on Starved Rock, and took from him, on La Salle's contingent order, written before his death, furs sufficient to carry Cavalier, at least, in good circumstances, back to France. Tonti, after La Salle's death, remained some time in command of Fort St. Louis, as La Salle's representative. In 1690, however, he addressed a petition to Pontchartrain, the minister at Paris, reciting that though he was commissioned and had served as captain for many years, he had received no pay. Frontenac, who by this time was again governor of Canada, endorsed Tonti's petition, in consequence of which he and La Forest, 
another faithful lieutenant of La Salle, were granted the proprietorship of Fort St. Louis, where they carried on a trade in furs. The station was a most important one, as we have seen, both politically and commercially. It was the most considerable Indian village in the Illinois country, having a population ranging, according to circumstances, from nothing to 20,000 souls, but averaging, at times of peace, about 8,000. The lodges were built along the river bank, for a distance of a mile or more, while the meadows were extensively cultivated, yielding large crops, chiefly of Indian corn. In 1696 the king issued an order abandoning Mackinac and other outposts on the lakes, as well as all other advanced posts except Fort St. Louis in the Illinois, which the king wishes maintained on condition that Sieurs de la Forest and Tonti, to whom he reserves the concession, should not bring or cause to be brought any beaver into the colony. Charlevoix says, I have been unable to ascertain on whose advice the king's council adopted this resolution. The excursions of the Canadians into new countries certainly ruined the commerce of New France, Canada, introduced frightful libertinage, rendered the nation contemptible among all the tribes on the continent, and raised insurmountable obstacles to the progress of religion. Whatever the cause of the above order, it is true that during the few years after La Salle's death, the influence and trade of the rock declined, both because of the dispersion of the resident tribes by Indian raids, and also because the influences at work in Canada against La Salle and his project had succeeded in changing the route to the Mississippi from the Illinois to that via the Fox River portage to the Wisconsin. In 1702, Tonti was directed to join Diberville in lower Louisiana, while La Forest was recalled to Canada. Then for the first time the fort was officially abandoned. It was reoccupied from time to time by Courreaux de Bois as an illicit trading post, and formally again in 1718, when a number of traders resided there. But when Charlevoix passed down the river in 1721, he found it abandoned, only the ruins of its palisades remaining. But little is known of Tonti after he joined Diberville and Charlevoix says he died at Fort St. Louis on the Mobile River at about the age of 54. N. Matson of Princeton, in his lifetime a collector of Indian and French Indian reminiscences, has printed a tradition which he says he heard from descendants of the old couriers, old residents now on the American bottom, who had it as it was handed down from father to son, as was the custom among primitive peoples everywhere. The story is that Tonti, years after 1702, returned to the rock, an old and broken man, where he died, revealing his identity at the supreme moment to the awestruck Indians and traders who had borne him to the summit where he had so long commanded. Let us hope if Tonti's brave heart and gentle spirit could find solace and rest dying here that it was so, but if, as this legend further says, Tonti's body was buried at the foot of Starved Rock, where the waters of the quiet Illinois would wash its southern segment, the living of today have still a duty to perform 
the erection of a stone to mark his last resting place. THE MISSIONS O oh, the generations old, over whom no church bells tolled, Christless, lifting up blind eyes to the silence of the skies, the bells of the Roman mission that call from their turrets twain to the boatman on the river, to the hunter on the plain. Whittier The Immaculate Conception The earlier American Catholic missionaries to the Indians of North America were to a degree distinguished for heroic self-devotion, energy of purpose, purity of motives, holiness of design. Nowhere can be found more that is sublime, even to eyes blinded by the glare of human greatness, than the biographies of these martyrs of the American wilderness. Parkman's volume, The Jesuits in North America, is one continuous tale of Christian heroism and zeal which has not been surpassed by any age of the church in any clime. The missionaries who sacrificed all things, suffered all things, endured all things, had not all passed from earth until these men, at least, had met death for Christ's sake and his church. We have seen how, in 1675, the gentle Marquette, the last of this line of Jesuit martyrs, established at the Illinois town the mission which he called the Immaculate Conception. How, reaching the village April 8th, he went from cabin to cabin instructing the inmates. Then, when all were sufficiently aware of the doctrines of the cross to follow his discourse, he convoked a general meeting on a beautiful prairie. There, before their wondering eyes, he raised his altar, and they beheld him offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass on the very day when, over sixteen centuries before, the God he preached had instituted it in the upper room in Jerusalem. Thus on Monday, Thursday, was possession taken of Illinois in the name of Catholicity, of Jesus, and of Mary. Two years later, the indefatigable Claude Alois was sent to Kaskaskia, as this great town was known to the churchmen. He arrived April 27, 1676, and was immediately lodged in Marquette's cabin. He worked hard, and on May 3rd, the feast of the invention of the Holy Cross, he erected in the midst of the village a cross twenty-five feet high, but though he baptized thirty-six infants and one adult, his mission at that time has not been counted a success. He was again at Kaskaskia in 1678, remaining until 1679, when he retired before the approach of La Salle. Though La Salle had an aversion to the Jesuits in general, who, he always believed, and with some reason, were his enemies, and a dislike to Alois in particular, he was still a profoundly religious man, and was invariably accompanied in his expeditions by the black gowns, notably the Recollet fathers Gabriel de la Riborde, Zenobius Membre, and Louis Hennepin. In the year 1680, the two former took up the work abandoned by Alois, and were with Tonti on the memorable day described on pages 26 and 27. After their escape from the Iroquois, Tonti and his Frenchmen and the two fathers embarked, September 18th, for Green Bay. On the next day, when the men were repairing their injured canoe, the aged father aboard retired apart to say his breviary. While thus engaged, he was met by a party of Kickapoos, out against the Iroquois, who ruthlessly murdered him. Thus, in his seventieth year, and in the fortieth of his priesthood, 
perished this last scion of a noble Burgundian house, who had renounced the world and its honors and the comforts of Europe for the wilds of Canada and a martyr's death. In 1680, Alois returned to the mission, remaining there until Cavier Joutel, Father Dewey, and the other survivors of La Salle's ill-fated colony arrived from Texas. As these men falsely said that La Salle was still alive and on his way to the rock, Alois again retired. Little is known of him after this time, except that he died at La Salle's Fort Miami in 1690, leaving a name imperishably connected with the discovery of the Great West. The year Alois left Kaskaskia, Father James Gravier visited Illinois, but at that time his mission did not become a permanent one, and the real successor of Alois was the famous Sebastian Rall, who was sent thither from Quebec, arriving in the spring of 1682. He found a town of three hundred cabins, of four to five fires each, two families to a fire, and a banquet in his honor was given by the head chief. Yet though he was heartily welcomed, the faith he preached made but slow progress. After a two years' stay with the Illinois, Father Raoul was recalled to his original charge, the Abenakis on the Kennebec River in Maine. Father Gravier came a second time to the Kaskaskia Mission in March 1694, and built a chapel within the fort on Starved Rock by Tonti's permission. He also built a second chapel outside the fort among the Indians, and planted before it a towering cross amid the shouts and musketry of the French. He remained in general charge of the mission until 1697, when he was recalled to Mackinac. He was succeeded by fathers Julius Beneteau and James Pinay. Father Gravier's mission seems to have been the most successful of all, in which work he was not a little assisted by Mary, daughter of the chief, and wife of Michael Acco, or Daco. Acco was probably one of Hennepin's companions in his voyage up the Mississippi, who on his return to the Illinois wished to marry the Indian maiden against her will, but with the consent of her father. Father Gravier sided with the maiden who at length yielded to her parents' wish in the hope that she might, by this self-sacrifice, be the means of bringing both Akko and her parents into the fold of Christ. Ultimately, her wish, we are told by Dr. Shea in a sympathetic chapter, was fully gratified, she having been the means of bringing many souls to the church. Father Gravier was the first to analyze the Illinois language and compile its grammar and its dictionary, but none of his words are said now to exist, except in bare fragments. In 1698 came Father Marist, under whose guidance and direction the mission was removed to the new Kaskaskia, the Kaskaskia of our time, the first capital of the state of Illinois, on the banks of the Mississippi. This migration of missionaries and Indians, which took place in the year 1699, was the natural result of the decay of the rock's importance as a military and commercial point, and of a desire for consolidation by the western or Illinois tribes against the Iroquois and those firebrands of the West, the Foxes. End of section six. Recorded by Veronica Jenkins in Ottawa, Illinois.